The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
Listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss the hermetic science of motion and number, and we're going to go back into this and get to section number four here, part four, lesson four, the law of rhythm. So I would encourage you, if you haven't listened to them in a while, go back and review the first three sections here, the first three lessons that we had gone through in this book by Mr. A.S. Raleigh, The Hermetic Science of Motion and Number. Fantastic book. It's available for free out there as a digital download. I highly suggest picking it up and reading it because it gives you a very good foundation for understanding many things in this world that we do not get taught anymore in our modern age, in our modern school system. And some of these ideas are very important to the natural order of things. So if you understand how these things operate and how these principles operate, you have a much firmer foundation on how things actually get done in this world that we live in. So with that being said, let's get into lesson four here, the law of rhythm. The apparently contradicting principles and operations and forces of nature are in reality but positive and negative aspects of the same thing. The duality which we find throughout all nature is merely a manifestation of unity. It is only in this way, by realizing the paradoxical character of all things, that we are able to arrive at absolute truth. Short of this, we can only deal in the relative. We speak of things under certain qualifications, but we only conceive of them in relation to something else. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So what he's saying here, I find to be absolutely true. We have this polarity principle that operates all through this reality that we have everywhere, where everything has its polar opposite. The, the whole idea of manifestation here, this duality angle that many of these occultists and philosophers come at things at, it kind of has a connotation to it that's incorrect in a way because it's not so much duality as it is polarity and there is a distinction between the two but we perceive it as duality although it is you know just two opposite concepts of the same thing it's like the uh, the analogy i could use as a coin right you have a coin it's got a head side and a tail side well it's still the same coin no matter which side you're looking at isn't it so this is how much of these things in this world operate. It's the same basic foundational principle. And that's what we're exploring here with the law of rhythm. So it's always this contrast between these two opposite poles that go back and forth along these different lines. But one cannot operate or exist without the other. And that's the important concept here to realize. So everything has this rhythmic pattern where it uh, has its seasons, so to say. Uh, and that, that's an important concept in and of itself, too. Just look at Mother Nature. How nature operates. We go through various seasons. And there are polar opposites in seasons. There's winter and summer. They're polar opposites. So when you look at the, the distinctions between the two, you could see uh, it's, it's all the same thing. It's all a manifestation of nature in its perfect timing. But it's 
the complete opposite of one another. And it, it, they're both found inherently in nature. They both exist, and they're both um, an abstraction of the same idea. It's just they're, they're opposite polarities. And, and this is how this concept, this hermetic principle, functions in a sense. So that, that's just one analogy I could put out there. But let's continue with the reading here. In order to establish an absolute code of ethics, we must understand the law of rhythm in regard to all things in the universe. Take, for instance, those ethical principles such as right and wrong. What do they mean? Originally, right meant straight and wrong meant crooked. In order to reach an absolute standard of right and wrong, it is necessary to recognize the twofold relation of all things and to get a view of that relation to which things or actions are straight or crooked. When we realize that matter is merely a manifestation of spirit, I'm going to repeat that, folks. Listen to that again carefully. When we realize that matter is merely a manifestation of spirit, that nature is an emanation and manifestation of God, manifested with more or less perfection than realizing this, and also the fact that all things in the universe are now in manifestation on a lower plane, have gone from, as it were, and are on the way to return to God, that man is a manifestation of God and is here for the purpose of returning to God. Realizing this, we have certain criterion by which we may measure the rightness or wrongness of any given action. All actions are right in proportion as their tendency is to lead the actor directly into union with God. They are wrong in exact proportion as their tendency is to cause the actor to deviate from the direct path which could cause man to be brought to God. It will be seen, therefore, that only is right which tends to union with God, that only is wrong which tends to prevent that union, which leads aside from the path which will lead to union with God. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So essentially the author here, A.S. Raleigh, is laying down this foundational principle of hermetic philosophy. And in this foundational principle of rhythm in hermetic philosophy, right or good can be construed as anything that leads to direct union with God. And bad or evil or sin is equivalent to anything that leads you off the path and strays away from this union with God. So this is an important concept in and of itself, and we all kind of vary down this path one way or another in our lives, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible says. So this being a principal truth, we understand that, yes, sometimes we do things that lead us astray, lead us away from God. But the, the beautiful thing is we could come back to that reunion with God. There is a way that was made for us as we will discuss later. But uh, I don't want to get too sidetracked or sidetrailed on various things. But that is an important distinction to remember, that we can get back to this reunion with God. Uh, Jesus Christ made a way for us to do so. And that's an important principle to understand. And even the occultists and the secret schools, the secret society groups, these occult fraternities, they all understand that principle to one degree or another. Now, they may try to twist or convolute that in some certain ways, or they may interpret it differently, but they all recognize the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. 
understand that. Make no mistake about that. They all uh, allot some sort of reverence to the figure of Jesus Christ. Uh, so keep that in mind as we move forward here. So there is an element of truth that can be garnered from just that fact alone. That we know that uh, Jesus Christ made a way for people. We know that he changed this world in ways that no other being ever had before or has since. So that being the case, this speaks something of the nature of Jesus Christ and the nature of God, whom he is the physical representation of here. And even the occultists recognize that, so that's an important fact, and he did make a way for all of us. But I'm not going to get all theological on you here, folks. <laughs> not tonight, but uh, I just thought I should point that out, because that is a very important thing for people to understand. There is a way, and a way for everybody, a way made easy for everyone. And Christ said himself he would be a stumbling block for these people, these occultists, these high priests of the various factions of religious philosophy and stuff like that. And he certainly has been a stumbling block for them, hasn't he? Because he made a way. He made it easy for everybody. He made a path for everyone. You don't have to go through some initiatory process in one of these secret society groups or schools and go through all this rigmarole of being trained by their occult teachers and taught all of these lofty things that they claim to teach and go through that whole process to find your way back to God. You don't have to do that. It's a free gift that he gave to everybody, and all you have to do is accept it. That's it. It's very simple. <laughs> and this is a stumbling block for these teachers of occult philosophy, for all of these different things. Now, don't get me wrong. It's still important to look at this stuff and understand what's being taught here, because there are some important foundational principles that are inherent in these teachings and things that you can learn about how nature operates so you could better understand cause and effect in this world. See, that's the important concept here. They've hidden this information away for a reason. Okay? This information has been locked up from the earliest of times by these priest kings, these early priest kings, these ones that brought it forward through the secret society groups. It's been locked up for a reason. Because if you understand some of these key principles of operation here in this world, well, then you have a type of power that they don't want you to have. They've kept these things secret to keep power over you, you see. So there are import some important things that can be garnered from looking at this stuff and, and learning about it. So it's not inherently evil in and of itself, if you're a Christian, to look at some of these teachings and to look at what it is they believe. If anything, it garners a better understanding for yourself of why these people in positions of power in this world do the things that they do. These dark occultists who run things, and that is most certainly who runs things in this world, folks. I assure you. And we've probably never heard their names. We probably have no clue who they are. But there are dark occultists who run things in this world. And these are the the principles they understand that we don't, and they leverage them against us. So the more you know, and the more you understand, knowledge is power. So we could take back our power by understanding some of these precepts. And even if you don't believe a lick of this, right? If you think all this stuff is nonsense, keep in mind, people in positions of power in this world very much believe this and act upon it. And the things they do to act upon it will affect all of us. So if we understand their philosophy, where they're coming from, what their methods are, what their tools are, you see, then we could better combat that.
So even if you don't take any stock in any of this stuff being true, which I think is a fallacy because there's a lot of truths that are inherent here. Otherwise, these teachings would not stand the test of time as they have. But, uh, you know, that being said, to each their own. But understand the principles that are being invoked here. And if you do, then you can understand why these people that are in charge do the things they do and how we could better combat that. So that's the important point. But uh, enough of the side trail. I'm going to get back into the reading here. True ethics are, therefore, theocentric and not anthropocentric, and all actions being right or wrong as they relate man to God. Every man must, therefore, have a code of ethics, to a certain extent at least, of his own, because that which would bring one person to God may be different from that course which would lead another to God. If a given action has a tendency to bring the actor in direct touch with God, that action is absolutely right for him, while it might have the effect of preventing another person from reaching that state. If so, it would be wrong for him. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So here is where the author diverges from common sense, okay? Saying there's an absolute moral right and wrong, but then saying, yeah, but it differs from person to person what that is. That's moral relativism, folks, and that's a path to destruction. There is an absolute standard of right and wrong, and God has laid this out, and we see this in many of the, the religious texts and stuff that we find, including the Bible. So if you follow those basic tenets and... Uh, to put it very simply, uh, and simplify it all down to just one basic sentence here. Love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your understanding, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. If you do that, then you're following God's law. You're following natural law. Don't do that which is hateful to another that you wouldn't like done to yourself. That's the golden rule, right? If you follow that, well, then you're on the right path. If you love God and acknowledge God, and you treat your neighbor how you would like to be treated, then it's all good, you see. Then all good things will begin to manifest, and all the other stuff will step and fall into place. So all of these legalistic-type religious doctrines, uh, they don't really stand up to scrutiny. We can't possibly keep all of those. But here's the big thing. The more aligned you are with this concept of love God and love your neighbor as yourself, the more that all of those other things will fall in line for you. Now, we're not perfect, and we could never be perfect. But, with that being the case, if our heart and our intention's in the right place, and we want to do our best to be a good person, and follow these moral guidelines that were given, these commandments that have been laid out for us, these natural laws, if we do our best to follow those, then we're on the right path, right? And, and that's the essential portion here that's important. You need to be on the right path. Now, this A.S. Raleigh says here that, uh, you know, there may be something that's right for one person, but wrong for another. Well, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. There may be certain circumstantial things where that may play into effect as to if God has a certain calling for one person and not another, the things that this one person does to follow that, that's one thing, but the other person not so much. It, uh, it's not really the same as the absolute moral or ethical standard of right and wrong in that degree, right? Uh, one path might be different for one person than it is for another. 
at the, the core of it all, we still need to follow these same basic moral and ethical guidelines that have been laid out for us. And we're all going to falter, and that's why we need forgiveness of that. And that's why God made the way for that to be so. But let's continue on. I don't want to turn this into a lecture on theology, because I certainly can do that, but uh, not my purpose here tonight. Take now the question of good and evil. Good properly means God. Evil, occultly, means that which separates. Used in contradistinction to good, it means that which separates from God, that which draws away from him, carries the person away from God. Good, used in opposition to evil, would, then, be that which tended to union with God. The whole mystery of good and evil is, therefore, summed up in the bringing to God or separation from him. This is the only conception of good and evil which presents them in their actualities. Now take the question of good and bad. Good, being equivalent to God, means that which is godlike in character. Bad, as the reverse, is that which is anti-godlike in its character. We can therefore see that the only question involved in any absolute ethical proposition is this. Does it tend to union with God or, on the other hand, to separation from God? In one sense of the word, good also represents the principle of accretion throughout all nature, human or otherwise, and evil the principle of separation or disintegration. We may say then that good is union, evil is separation. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he's making a distinction here between evil and bad. Did you catch that when we were going through this? <clears throat> so this might actually be an important contradistinction here to make. Okay, so he's claiming evil and bad are, are separate things, all right? He says bad is the reverse. It leads, it, it's what they would call anti-godlike in its character, and good is godlike in its character. Evil, he says here, the concept of evil, is causing separation from God. So there's a, a minor distinction between evil and bad here. We can therefore see that the only question involved in any absolute ethical proposition is this. Does it tend to union with God, or on the other hand, to separation from God? In one sense of the word, good also represents the principle of accretion throughout all nature, human or otherwise, and evil, the principle of separation or disintegration. We may say, then, that good is union, evil is separation. All manifestations are first accomplished through separation, and then through union. In a word, antagonism is the means by which manifestation is accomplished. Were there no evil, separation, there would be no good, union. Everything passes out from God during the process of individualization. After a time, the return begins. When this individuality, having been developed, is lost, union is the result. Thus, all development is cyclical. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. Cyclical. The hermetic principle of rhythm is all about cycles how this world operates in cycles and that's demonstrable we could see that all through nature around us so that being the case that's what he's talking about here so he talks about manifestation here we are separated and individuated from god and through our journey here in this world that we live in and through our various spiritual worlds that we we pass through allegedly here according to their teachings we come back to union once again with god so 
it's a cycle. It's a process. So that being the case, that's what's being described here. But let's read on. There is first a downward sweep into matter, then a home stretch out of matter into spirit. Progress is the outgrowth of this twofold operation. Without the descent, the ascent is an impossibility. Without involution, there can be no evolution. As we descend into matter, that is, pass away from God, we first learn to appreciate the value of God. We very often hear the question asked, why does God permit evil? For the simple reason that without this antagonism, this opposition, it is impossible for any manifestation to take place. Before man is able to appreciate the value of service to God, of harmony, of union, he must have first fully realized the terrible consequences of separation, individualization, evil. Until man has tried separation, he does not realize the value of union. This principle is very nicely expressed in the parable of the prodigal son. Here we have a young man leaving his father's house, demanding his part of the estate, going forth to develop his ego, to express his individuality. As long as the money lasts, that is, as long as he is able to enjoy this attitude, this life of separation, he thinks nothing of his father's house. At last they find him starving, feeding swine, reduced to the lowest depth of degradation, fully realizing the terrible consequences of the past life. Finally, having been reduced down to this lowest point, having, in a word, developed his individuality, he realizes the total uselessness of it. Realizing how perfectly unfruitful is this kind of life, at last he says, I will rise and go unto my father. Realizing the position of a servant is better, altogether more desirable than that of a free man. His individuality is now surrendered. He has laid it down, and he starts on the return to his father's house. Here we find him coming back. He is now received. His father does not chase after him. He does not send missionaries after him. He makes absolutely no effort to bring him back. He allows him to go ahead do as he pleases, expressing his individuality, until such time as he fully realizes the worthlessness of this thing, and prefers the position of a servant to this individuality. Even so, the soul, when it wanders from home, going into the path of evil, going away from God, is expressing its individuality. God makes no effort to reclaim it, because he knows that it must have this experience. It must find out in the bitter school of experience that individuality is most undesirable. Realizing this, he allows it to go ahead in its own way. It is not interrupted. It is permitted to travel the path of evil until it has learned that individuality is worthless. Then it is ready to begin the return, to come back into union with God. This spirit of antagonism is, therefore, the very means of offering an opportunity for the highest development of the good. We have very often heard the question, If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he kill the devil? For the simple reason that the devil is of too much value at the present stage of the game, he cannot be spared. It is because of this continual war between good and evil that the highest attainment, or, for that matter, any attainment at all, is possible. Were there no darkness, there would be no light. Were there no cold, there would be no heat. In like manner, were there no evil, there would be no good. Were there nothing wrong, there would be nothing right. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So essentially, 
what Mr. Raleigh here is stating is that uh, this duality that we call it has to exist because it's the only way that we could express free will. We've been given the gift of free will from God, and we use this free will in order to come back to union with God in some context here. So it, essentially what he's saying is we need to learn the hard way. We need to learn the penalty for separating ourselves from God and understand that it's a fruitless road to do so. And I don't know if I necessarily agree with his philosophy here. Okay, We could still have individuality and individuation from God and still be serving God or be part of this union with God. And I think that's one of the mysteries that really you know, surrounds this whole experience that we have here. I don't think it's necessarily all about becoming one with God once again. We are all fractal representations of the consciousness of God in many ways. So we all have this divine spark, but we all have our own individuality. And this is a gift given us by God. So is the intention really to draw us back to him and to be reunified with him again? Or is there some other way to describe this? Or does he just want our company kept with him? We can never be God, although we all have this spark of life that God gives us, this divine spark that he gives us, you see. But it's just a fractal piece of him. But we can never be God. So when they're talking about reunification with God, what does that look like? Well, according to this gentleman here, A.S. Raleigh, he says that we go through this process here. We're sent here to give these choices and to have this individuality handed to us so that we could learn that individuality is not desirable and return back once again to God. I think it's kind of a contorted view to look at it as, a contorted lens to view it through. Because I fully believe that God has vested in us this individuality for a reason. And yes, we do will have some type of atonement with God or at one with God. But I don't think it necessarily means that we will return back to God and become part of the amalgamation once again in that way. I think it's more about community with God, communion with God, rather than... Uh, how they would term it here, returning back to God or becoming, uh, you know, unified with God. I don't know if it's so much unification. It's more communion with God, I think, is what he's looking for with this reunification. So it's a different distinction, and sometimes it's hard to find the language to describe these things. We, we do our best here. But I think it's just a, a slight difference in interpretation here going on by Mr. Raleigh. Okay, so that being the case, let's read on. The law of rhythm is mastered when we realize that the various opposites are merely the twofold aspect of unity. By realizing this, we polarize them, making one the positive and the other the negative pole of this unity. The result is that harmony is brought out of contradiction, order out of chaos, agreement out of contradiction. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. Excuse me, did you catch that, the order out of chaos bit? Don't we hear this a lot in the Masonic circles? <laughs> of course we do. Where do you think that came from? <laughs> so, 
order out of chaos yes uh, so these would be two polar opposites chaos and order would be polarity it's the the same dynamic here that's the best way to describe these things as a dynamic i don't know if i like the word duality because it insinuates certain things that don't seem to hold true polarity works as far as a descriptive term but i think dynamic works better because one plays off of the other you see just like a polarity of sorts would but uh, you know dynamic i think is the best term to describe this kind of thing in my view anyway that's just my opinion but let's read on the person having realized the law of rhythm is in a position then to intelligently condemn no one realizing that everything has its place nothing is useless the evil is just as necessary as the good at certain stages of evolution it is in this sense that the aphorism always good is found to be true always good because the evil is preparing the way for the manifestation of the good it is because of this law of rhythm that all occult teachers teach in paradoxes the paradox being the only way by which a complete truth may be presented this is the reason why there are always two sides to every question one aspect presents the positive the other the negative pole of the principle involved consequently we must teach in paradoxes in order that the by contradiction we may present both sides of the question thus this law of polarity or rhythm gives us a glimpse of absolute truth and i'm going to pause for a second there folks yes they do teach in paradoxes in these occult fraternities they do teach in paradoxes and we do experience many paradoxes in life don't we and it could be for this very reason that it's because of this polarity principle or this principle of rhythm as it's described here and these these principles it's two separate hermetic principles the polarity principle and the the rhythm principle but they function together in many different ways and that's what we're seeing here this rhythm is the ebb and flow back and forth along these polarized lines along the polarity and we we need this to a certain degree this is how motion happens this is how change happens and that is the only constant in this world we live in is change everything's always changing and that being the case that in and of itself creates a paradox doesn't it because the only thing that's the same is the, is the change right so <laughs> it sounds like a paradox in and of itself so you, you could understand where the guy's coming from when he's talking about this and this does seem to be a rather true facet of all religious or spiritual type teachings as well as philosophical works we have all these paradoxes these counterintuitive arguments that never seem to make sense at one level when it's it's really understood deeply uh, we could understand okay that perhaps these polarities one needs to exist in order for the other to exist and they play upon each other and this is how things happen and manifest in this world so that being the case that's how rhythm plays in with that but uh, it, i find it interesting he points out that yes they do teach in paradoxes and that is what creates a lot of confusion with people you see because you're taught one thing and maybe you're only taught one side of one of these concepts or something like that so then when you're presented with the opposite view uh, you disregard it and this is when cognitive dissonance kicks in 
and you discard that whole idea because it butts heads with your worldview because you've only been one, taught one side of a thing. And we see so much of this, and this is a dynamic. Once again, there's that important word, as I say, a dynamic that comes into play through the social engineering of society. They take issues, sometimes political issues, and most of the time, and they'll break people apart on these lines of polarity that relate to this social issue, and they'll play each side against the other to achieve the synthesis that they want somewhere in the center. So a perfect example of this would be, uh, you know, something like the abortion ideology that they put forward in the world today, the abortion rights argument that's out there. So they have these two sides of the argument, and they constantly have these two sides really fighting back and forth and really, you know, converging a lot of energy on this one topic in particular, fighting back and forth and really achieving nothing really substantial as far as change goes within that whole concept. Now, they used it to their advantage for political purposes just recently to manipulate various political energies or social energies in certain ways, and they've been extremely successful in doing so. So they're using this polarization, this energy, back and forth for a reason. So this is just a, a topic. I, I'm just giving this as an example of how this works, how it's used in political strategy. You see, uh, so this principle of rhythm comes into play here. So they see, okay, perhaps the nation is beginning to lean towards more conservative principles once again. So perhaps we should take some kind of counteraction to uh, appease that to some degree. And then that will bring back sentiment from the other side and then they'll become embattled and the energies will shift again. And we'll keep shifting the energies back and forth and keep them somewhere relatively towards the middle of the argument here. We, they shift it whatever direction they need to for whatever politically expedient reason that they want. So in order to get certain people in positions they want or in, certain to, in order to get certain legislation they want passed, they'll utilize this principle. This is very much done by the political class. Okay, just so you understand, and it's all based upon this hermetic principle. So that's just one example of how this gets done. But let's continue reading on here. The law of non-resistance is a natural outgrowth of the recognition of the law of rhythm. And why? For the simple reason that a person recognizing the law or rhythm sees that all evil is good in its ultimate tendencies because this experience is necessary in a certain stage of human development. Now, because the sinner is in the very act of sinning, doing what is for him necessary in order that he may learn his lesson, we should not resist his having this experience because depriving him of the experience will mean to prevent his finding God, as he can only apprehend the value of divine services by living in rebellion against God. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. I don't think I necessarily agree with that assessment. I don't think it's helpful to let people continue in their sin when you know it's going to lead to their destruction. Is that not sinful in yourself to not intervene if you know something bad is going to happen? To not say something at least or try to steer them in the right direction? Maybe make some subtle gesture to them that uh, perhaps they should choose another alternative or action? 
try to nudge them in the right direction, at least do something, rather than let them go and fail. I don't know if that's necessarily helpful, and I don't know if that necessarily aligns with the divine plan here. Okay, And this is why I always tell you, you have to take a lot of these teachings and stuff with a grain of salt, because there's always that little bit of poison that's added in. I don't think that's necessarily right. I understand the principle he's going for here that, you know, in order for us to come back to God, we have to realize first how, how bad it is to be without God, you see. Uh, I understand that to a certain degree, but at the same token, if we stand by and do nothing when we see bad or evil being done around us, then that makes us kind of complicit in a sense, right? Because how does that old expression go? It's not necessarily bad men who who uh, change the world. It's the, the good men who stand by and do nothing while this is going on. That is what causes the problem in the world. And I know I, I kind of butchered that, uh, that statement, but uh, you get the idea of what that paraphrase means. It's when good men sit idly by and do nothing when they see evil going on around them. That's when evil really begins to manifest and take over. And that, I think, goes against what our divine calling is. That goes against, I think, the action that God would want us to take. If we see evil and we recognize evil, is it not our mandate to, first of all, call it out, and second of all, try to do something to remedy it? I would say that's probably so. Going from this uh, absolutist ideology of morals and ethics being derived from the godly source rather than being moral relativism, as is presented a little bit earlier in this teaching, to a certain degree. You can't have it both ways. This guy's trying to teach it both ways. You can't have an absolute standard of right and wrong, and then say some some rights are right for the right people and wrong for other people. Well, that's, that, that's, not, <laughs> that's not an accurate way to look at things. You can't have it both ways. He's trying to have it both ways in how he's expressing this stuff. And I don't think that uh, I necessarily agree with that overall ideology here. But uh, like I said, you got to take this stuff with a grain of salt, and I do find value in some of the teachings here. That's why it's important to go through this and really use your discernment to pick and choose what you think is the valuable information here and what you think we're better left to discard. Uh, like some of these suggestions made here by Mr. Raleigh, as to the nature of how it is that what sin is for, or what sin is, and how it relates to people finding their way back to union with God. So, with that being the case, I'm going to continue on here. What is sin in reality? Sin is a transgression of law. Law, in this sense, is the statement or presentation of the divine will. Sin, therefore, is merely the result of of the human will arrayed in opposition to the divine will. Righteousness, used in contradistinction to sin, is merely a human will being governed and subordinated to the divine will and acting consistently with this state or condition. Going to pause for a moment there. I don't necessarily disagree with that description here, or that definition of what he's talking about. I think that's absolutely the point. I think it's just, you know, perhaps his interpretation of what is the divine will as in contradistinction as to what is the will of man, right? And this is where you absolutely need an absolute standard of right or wrong 
to understand the divine will. Because if you don't have that absolute moral guidepost to go by, how will you know what the divine will is? You see, God is it not one that changes. The only consistent thing about where we are and what we do is we change. God is all things, so God being manifest, the manifestation of all things, or having his will manifest in all things, is an unchanging commodity, because he encompasses everything. He's all-encompassing, right? God is all-encompassing, so therefore, change is not really something that happens with God, because he transcends all of this existence or creation that we live in. Change is something that's inherent here, and it's something that happens here, because that's the nature of how it has been manifest. But God existing simultaneously within and outside of this paradigm does not change because he is change in a certain sense. He encompasses all the change. I don't know if I'm describing this in an adequate way for people to really understand or wrap their head around. Sometimes the language escapes me. I think it escapes all of us. And that's why it's it's difficult to look at a lot of this type of information and really try to process it, break it down, and identify what's being said. Because there's always misinterpretation. And there's always something, just some type of understanding, just out of grasp of the use of language to describe, you see. And, and this is where it, it gets difficult to put concepts into words especially in the English language, which is a very muddled language to begin with, where we've lost a lot of nuance and meaning to the language. But that's, that's a discussion for another day. But let's go ahead and we will continue reading here. The difference, then, between a sinner and a righteous person is merely the difference between a person exercising a free will and one whose will is subordinated to the divine will. And in plain words... This is merely the difference between an individualist and a servant of God. Man, by continual transgression, that is to say, continual transgression and rebellion against the will of God, ultimately learns the very important lesson that subordination to that will is much better for him than individual independence of will. He quits sinning because he sees that it is not good for him, that it is not proper to do so. In other words, he surrenders himself to divine guidance. Sin, therefore, is permitted as a part of the racial experience. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. They always, always, always have to include racial ideas in these occult teachings. It's absolutely the way it has always been with these groups always has to do with race and with evolution and all these different things that they teach these convoluted belief systems about, and that's where they come up with ideas that uh, one stock of people is superior to another stock of people, and that's where all these ide ideologies stem from. It's all a misinterpretation and a misunderstanding of the basic nature of humanity that brings about these differences along racial lines. But they always, always, always teach it inherently with their other teachings here. So we see here A.S. Raleigh, no different. A lot of this derives directly from Rosicrucian teaching. The Rosicrucians are obsessed with this racial idea 
uh, because they claim that there are these root races that, of humanity. And as we go through these different evolutionary cycles, that uh, the different races manifest different traits and stuff like this. And it's all part of the evolutionary process. And where they get all this information, eh, who knows? Right. <laughs> this is this is one of the things they teach and they teach it as, a, you know, an authoritative thing uh, through these secret teachings. And is there truth to it? Who could say for sure? Right. But th this is what they teach and they could never actually cite the original source as to where this came from. Are we taking the word of some ancient initiate from way back that supposedly, you know, uh, was channeled this information from some higher realm or something like that uh has it been recorded by multiple people is it something that's verifiable no and that's why I, I caution people a lot of this stuff you have to take with a grain of salt you really do because there's no way to really prove or disprove anything that they teach in these occult fraternities but there are many of these teachings that are kind of accepted as fact throughout the various different secret schools out there, these occult fraternities and stuff, because it's such a commonality in teaching. And this is one of the ideas, that we have these various root races from which we are descended, and we're going through this process of evolution, and this is directly where the idea of evolution comes from, directly from these ancient mystery school teachings and through the secret society groups. And it's been perverted and misconstrued in the modern era as what we call Darwinian evolution, and they've taken these concepts and perverted them and inverted them from what the original meanings or, or ideas that surrounded them were, and they've turned them into an agenda-driven control system for themselves to maintain their control and to pat themselves on the back and think that they are superior, that they have the divine right to rule because they're of a superior racial stock or some such idiotic nonsense. And this is the, you know, what they teach through these secret society groups. And this is absolutely the same ideologies that led Nazi Germany to do the atrocities and commit the atrocities that it has back in the day. Same teachings. If you if you go down and look, it, it was all with ties to these occult fraternities, various groups, the real society. All of these different ideas were inherent through all of it. Many of the high-ranking Nazi leaders were high-level occultists and practiced many of these things, studied all of this stuff, and really sincerely thought that all of this stuff was true and acted on it in a way that it's true. That's why I tell you, even if you don't believe a lick of it, understand there's people in positions of power in this world that do, and the things they do to act on that will affect us. And Nazi Germany is the perfect example of that being the case. Okay, so keep that in mind. But uh, at any rate, this is what they teach. There may be a core of truth to some of it. There may not. It's really hard to say. But uh, it's information. It's valuable still to understand these ideologies, whether you think there's something to them or not. And I just thought it was necessary to go on that sidetrack because they always seem to attach sin to certain racial stocks and not others in certain ways to try to infer this superiority of certain racial lineages and things like that. And believe it or not, it's not always these same racial lineages that, that crop up as being uh, that are taught in the different groups that are the superior ones it's it's it may be different than what you think uh, let's put it that way 
But at any rate, there's always this inherent idea of my team's better than yours. It's still kind of a, a trait that's inherent in human psychology. It's all about tribalism, right? And, and this is exactly what this hits upon, is the tribalistic mindset of people. And, of course, each tribe is going to think that their tribe is the most advanced or most superior one of all of them, and should therefore rule over the others. That's just a commonality of human experience, right? It's, it's part of the human condition. And, you know, equating sin to some ethnic group or something like that, not fair, not truly adequate, because we're all human beings, folks. But this is the kind of ideologies that have always circled around in these occult teachings and through these secret society groups. So it's important to understand. That's what they teach. And, you know, right there in his own words, he says here, this will repeat that last sentence and then we'll move on because I don't want to get hung up on the side topics too much once again. So he says, sin, therefore, is permitted as part of the racial experience. It is by going through this ordeal that character is developed. Consequently, sin is just as necessary in the present stage of our evolution as righteousness. Because we know this, therefore we do not condemn the actions of another. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. So basically what he's saying is, it's okay, anything goes. You see, we shouldn't be so judgy, right? We shouldn't be judgmental, we shouldn't condemn another. They're just learning. And don't we see this ideology spread through a lot of liberal ideologies and stuff now in this country and in the world today? Well, they have to learn their lesson, you see. They're here to learn from their mistakes. So should we just let people make mistakes, the same mistakes over and over again, with no consequence for their actions? Are they really going to learn a lesson that way? Is, is that true? But... This is the, the kind of association they present here. And you can see how the ideologies have been kind of twisted and contorted in many ways. Yes, I agree, this world is a type of school and we're here to learn lessons. But we shouldn't be allowed to just grossly fall on our face if there's somebody that knows better and sees us taking a wrong path. Should they not redirect us? Or attempt to? At any rate, you see... It's as simple as, like, do you let your child run over and put his hand on the hot stove? Because you know, okay, well, he's got to learn the lesson. Or do you caution him? You say, no, don't touch the stove. It's hot. You will burn your hand. Or do you let him do it? And this is where the difference lies. According to this guy, you should let the child just run over and put his hand over the hot stove and burn his hand so he learns the lesson. I don't think that's a godly spirit speaking there, folks. That's just my opinion, which I am entitled to, and everybody's entitled to their own opinion. Sometimes a lot of people do need to learn the hard way because of how they're hardwired. I know people like that, that you could tell them, hey, you know what, I don't think that's a good idea, don't do it, and they'll go do it anyway, and they'll get bit in the butt for doing so, and then they'll come back and say, oh, you were right, but, you know, I didn't listen, and I learned the hard way. Well, that's on you then. But I think as being a, you know, being a good person or fulfilling the, the law or fulfilling the, the will of God, when you see something wrong going on, you speak up. You try to do something to correct that. You don't just let it go and think it's all good. Who am I to judge, right? 
because in so doing, it's causing more harm that may be unnecessary harm, and maybe the person would learn the lesson without getting burned. We may say he is underdeveloped, young, so to speak, in the process of childhood, but still, he is not depraved. He is simply learning a very important lesson. It is in this sense that the saying is true. To know all is to forgive all, because knowing, understanding the relation between all activities, we know that those evil tendencies are just as important as the good in working out this transformation and development of character. And I'm going to pause again there, folks. I don't necessarily agree with that statement. I don't think that uh, these evil tendencies are just as important as good tendencies for the development of character. I don't think that's necessarily a truth. I think that we need to recognize them and try to do something about them to help the situation, to turn them to good. You see, that's what true spiritual alchemy is all about, taking the bad and turning it to good, making it good, making something right. For all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. You see, the Bible says that. All these things can be worked together for good. So all the bad things that come, we can transform them into good. But that's not to say that we should let the bad things manifest and continue because it's all part of the process, right? That we should do nothing about it. We should just ignore it. We're not to judge that. We're not to uh, uh, do anything about that. I, I don't think that's the correct stance to take on this. It just seems counterintuitive to everything I've experienced and learned in my lifetime. You see, to stand back and idly watch bad things go on when you have the power to do something about it, I think is a true evil in and of itself. And I don't think that's what the divine will would be in this case. So I will disagree with A.S. Raleigh on some of these stances that he takes here, teaching this principle of rhythm. I understand Yes, we do have necessity to learn in this place. But at the same token, we're here to help others as well. So if we're not helping others, then I, I think we're missing out on something. And the other people are potentially missing out on something. So will I one day be called to account for not taking action when I should have? Maybe. Who's to say for sure? I live my life by a simple code. If you know something is the right thing to do, do it. That's it. Otherwise, to not do it, I think, is a negation of the potential for something good. So even if you take action and you think you're, you're doing the right thing, you think it's an action towards good, and it fails miserably, at least you made the attempt. And perhaps... There's a reason that you made the attempt, and perhaps it will still have some effect. I believe that is necessarily the case, because it's all about intention in this world. Everything comes down to intention. So, with that being the case, I think good intention can go a long way. We can now understand the purpose of the apparent injustice, inequality, misery, suffering, and privations which are seen all around us. They are but the environment which makes development possible. They stimulate sin and evil by drifting along in accordance with their suggestions. Man develops the evil, learns the consequence of transgression, something that he could not possibly learn otherwise. 
By resisting those tendencies and developing in spite of their influence the opposite, he thus forms the good character which brings him nearer and nearer to God. Thus, this hostile environment to virtue is merely the gymnasium in which the moral athlete develops his ethical muscles. <laughs> I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, a lot of this sounds a little bit, <laughs> a little off base for me. Okay, I understand. I, I get the principle he's trying to teach here. I really do. But at the same token, the way he comes across with it and and how he's presenting it makes it sound as if the only way to be righteous is to first be evil. It does not make a lick of sense to me. And I understand we learn more from our failures than we do from our successes. But at the same token, should we continue to fail just because we'll learn more from that when we have the potential and the ability to succeed and we have the plan to succeed, you see? Uh, so you, you got to wonder, should I continue to do bad things? Because according to this theory, doing these bad things teaches you these lessons so that you learn to value your walk with God, or to come back to atonement with God, come back to reunion with God. So should we just, you know, do all the bad stuff while we're here so that we could maybe learn the lesson? And do we view that as being the valuable portion of life? Or the whole point to it is to do the bad stuff and get slapped down for it? Do you really want that? Or how about the ones that do the bad stuff and seem to get away with it? What do they learn from that? Do they advance spiritually from that? Do they come closer to God for that? No. And this is also making the assumption here, and, and you get this from a lot of the secret society groups, this is under, using the assumption, making the assumption that reincarnation is really a thing. And is it really? I don't know. Who could say for sure, but this is certainly what they teach. But if they wanted to trick you, if somebody, say, out there wanted to trick you, uh, you know, into giving up your ability to have communion with God and to give up your connection with God, wouldn't they try to convince you that, ah, if you mess up this time, no big deal. You'll just come back again and have another chance. What if you only got one shot, folks? You got to think about this stuff. You really do. What if you only have one shot at it? Well, wouldn't that be just an absolute kick in the nuts? <laughs> I would think so. If they're teaching you something like this, yeah, if you mess up, here, live it up now so that you learn the lessons. And, you know, when you return over and over again, to, then your karma will, you know, pile up. And at some point, you'll, you'll learn to be a better person and not be an idiot and uh, not do all the bad things and and then then you could you know have reunification with god what if they're wrong what if you only got one shot here where did the teachings of reincarnation come from i know they're inherent with all these different mystery school teachings and they go back a long time to a lot of different ancient religions and stuff and I know a lot of it's based upon things that are observed in nature, like the, the cycles of rebirth, the, the cycles of death and birth and rebirth, as they call it, and these kind of things. We see some of this inherent in nature, but how do we know that it's the same spirit attached 
and it comes back again. We don't. There's no way to prove that. We don't really, we can't really source the original source that taught about reincarnation, nor can we verify the validity of that source. So that being the case, what if you only got one shot? Hmm? Something to think about. So a teaching like this would definitely take people astray, if that's the case. And that's why I think we see a lot of debauchery involved in many of these occult teachings, because they think, eh, well, maybe at some point I'll be able to either, first of all, they, they teach that, maybe you yourself can become God or become a God, or second of all, if you mess up, no big deal, because you're coming back again and you'll get it right at some point. Right? What if all that's wrong, and that's just leading you astray from the divine will, from God? I think these things need to be considered, folks. I think they do. So, <laughs> what if they're wrong? Well, then they'll pay an eternal price, potentially, right? But, uh, you know, if they're right, then who knows? But, uh, at any rate, uh, <laughs> I just find the way he talks about this interesting because he, he kind of presents it in a way where, yeah, yeah, well, evil's going to exist and it's a necessary part of being here and we, we shouldn't judge it because, you know, it's somebody else's walk uh, and, you know, it's the only way they're going to come to know God is to do the bad stuff. So we shouldn't say nothing about it, shouldn't do anything about it, just let them go. It's all part of their experience here. They need to learn their lesson. Well... I don't agree with that, <laughs> for various reasons, as we've discussed. But this is kind of what's implied here, and I'm going to continue on. Evil is, therefore, an important instrument in the hands of God for the perfecting of a character. Nothing can manifest except through opposition. It is from the law of opposites, as reduced to rhythm, that the most perfect application of all the activities of nature become possible. It is through it that the value of obedience is learned. What should then be the attitude of the master of this law in regard to the evil which we see around us? All social evils are due to one, and only one, cause. Humanity is traveling the evil path. It is not living in harmony with God, nor even trying to do so. Our social evils are, therefore, the legitimate outgrowth of a humanity traveling the path of separation. We should not, therefore, attempt to remove them. They are just what we want. The man who refuses to subordinate to... Uh, subordinate his will to the divine, but insists upon exercising his individuality, upon developing his ego, is merely getting what is coming to him when the evils of society overtake him. Not only is this true, but those evils are the very force that sooner or later will teach him the futility and the unfruitfulness of any effort to live independent of God. The man who would rather be free than to be God's servant is a fool, and the sooner he finds it out, the better it is for him. And the natural, inevitable consequences of this freedom are the best means of teaching him the lesson. Therefore, we should make no effort to save him from this mostly salutary experience. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. In my view, this is the exact opposite of what God's will for us would be here, of what divine will would be in this case. I don't think we should leave them fall 
into their trap if we have the power and potential to change something for them and help them get on a better path. I don't think we should just let them go. They'll get what they deserve. I don't like that attitude. I don't think that's a godly attitude. You see, if God really, truly wanted to let us get what we deserve, what would that look like? You see, so I don't think that holds true. God has mercy. The God I know has mercy and love and compassion for his people. Not this, they need to learn the lesson the hard way kind of mentality. Some people would call it tough love. In this case, I don't see it as that. Now, I understand sometimes people are going to be, you know, of that mindset where they only learn the hard way. But we should still try to intervene if we can and help them to find a better way. At least warn them. See, rather than to stand idly by and watch them perish. If you know that uh, around the corner, up ahead, on the highway, that the bridge is out and there's a cliff there, and, you know, it's a blind corner, and, you know, you see somebody driving that way, shouldn't you try to get their attention if you're walking on the side of the road, flag them down, say, hey, the bridge is out up there. You might want to turn around. Or do you just watch them go drive over off the cliff? What would be the right thing to do? Well, essentially, this guy's saying, let them drive off the cliff. Right? I don't think that's divine will. I don't think that's inspired by God, that attitude. You see? Well, they deserve it, right? Because they're dumb enough to not slow down and go around the corner and, and you know, have pay enough attention to the road. I don't think that's the right attitude. I don't think that's a godly attitude. I don't think that's the will of God or the Spirit of God saying this. So that being the case, I, I do take a little bit of exception to some of the things that Mr. Raleigh is teaching here. Now, I understand some of the basic core tenets that he's teaching and the principles involved. And yes, there are some natural principles that apply in some of these ways. But the way he's describing it here, you know, I understand this world we live in is a school of sorts, and it is a necessity for us to learn certain lessons, but we shouldn't just blindly walk around and let each other fall and fail and suffer needlessly when we know enough to at least warn somebody of what their consequences of their actions will be or, you know, try to help them to navigate through a better way if we see that they're going to do something bad. You see, I think that's what it's all about, helping others while we're here. Not just letting them wander around blindly and, uh, you know, lead to their destruction so that, you know, maybe at some point in the future they'll find value in their relationship with God. I don't think this is a useful way of thinking, especially if this is our only go-around here. Anyway, this sounds like, a, I said, like a guy that wants to have it both ways. <laughs> and in... You know, that's kind of what he's teaching. Not only is this true, but the person understanding the law need not expect to reform or lift up the person who is trying to be free, to be an individual, to develop an ego. Let him go ahead his own way. He cannot receive the truth until he is ready for it. It is only when he has finished his course that he will be ready for the return path. Therefore, do not evangelize, do not proselyte. 
If you see one who is ready, who is searching for the divine will, really wants to reform, wants to conform to it, and is asking what it is, then help him to return, but the man who does not want to return should be left alone. As long as man's nature, taste, tendencies are evil, let him go ahead and enjoy the evil to the limit. Only when he searches for the good can the good be imparted to him. It is utterly useless. Take a swine and wash him, dress him up, turn him loose, and he will seek a mud puddle just the same. If the human swine wish to lie in the mud, let them do so by all means. Do not waste any valuable energy trying to teach them a better way of life. As long as they enjoy the mud, let them wallow in it. It is their nature, and so let them give expression to this nature. When they get tired of mud and desire something better, then help them to get it. But do not waste any effort trying to make people something that they do not wish to be. This is the secret which the law of rhythm has to impart to us. The, the low, degraded, debased light is just as necessary at certain stages of human culture as the highest, most, athetic, most aesthetic, most spiritual. Therefore, it is not for you to interfere with those persons who are traveling the downward path. It is for them. They must express and develop that phase of life activity. Those who realize the worthlessness and baseness of that phase of life, and as a result are trying to live on the higher plane, you may help. Bear in mind, it is only those who have started on the return path who can be helped upward. While man is exercising and developing the evil, there is absolutely nothing which can be done that will change his course. He must reach the bottom before he begins to return toward the top. The individuality must be developed before it can be surrendered. Had man remained in harmony with God all the time, he would have possessed no character. His mentality would not have been developed. He would be just as his creator made him without having established any definite character. It was thus by starting on the path of evil or separation that he was able to develop character. When this character has been fully developed, he will thus have secured a more perfect degree of knowledge, understanding, and character with which he may serve God than he could possibly have possessed without such experience. The individualist is, therefore, necessary for this purpose as a realization of the purpose of God, just as much so as the one who has attained cosmic consciousness. The person who has announced or renounced his individuality is merely on his return, traveling toward God, while the one expressing his individuality is traveling away from God. Both are necessary to express human progress. The race will derive the benefit accrued from the actions of both. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So a couple of things here. Once again, he's doubling down on this idea that, uh, you know, we shouldn't say something or do something if we see somebody doing something bad. Because if they're doing that and they're acting in this way, in the degraded way, well, they're on this downward path, you see, he's saying, this path away from God. Is that true? I don't think that's necessarily true. I see, once again, this is making assumptions about things like reincarnation and that they're, they're further cycling and spiraling downward in the cycle away from God. And, you know, it's only when they're on the return path that they could be helped. So don't help them. So he's saying that these people that we see, 
that have this type of misery, this degree of misery and degradation in their life, don't try to help those people. Only if they reach out to you and ask for help do you, uh, you know, help them. You see, and once again, he, he comes off and he says here that these people, when they're in that state and they're on that downward spiral, they can't be helped. So you shouldn't waste your time or effort in trying to do so. I don't think that's correct. This is another way in which these occultists and these secret society groups, how they prop themselves up as being superior, you see. They're, they're, they're so much more evolved than the rest of us, than the profane, right? This is the way they view themselves. So they have this superior stance. So they shouldn't help the swine. Notice he used the uh, analogy of swine. Don't cast your pearls before swine. This is the attitude they have, right? They don't want to reach down and help somebody because they think, well, they're beyond help because they're on this downward path away from God. And somehow these occultists seem to think that they're in some way closer to God or, you know, on the upward path back towards reunification with God, even though they act in ways that are totally opposed to what God's word says, what the absolute moral standard he gave us says, you see. But somehow they think that's okay because they're just, they're superior. They're on the upward spiral, right? And they'll only help the people that uh, they, they, they deem worthy to help. Although we're not supposed to judge any of that evil miscreant stuff that's going on. We're not supposed to formulate an opinion about that. We're supposed to just let that happen because that's part of their experience. So that maybe at some point in the future, though, or in a future life or something, maybe they'll start to see the value of a relationship with God again, and then they'll, they'll be on the upward swerve. And then maybe they could be helped, you see. All of these ideas are fallacious, Let's keep it that way. Let's, let's keep it under that premise. There's flaws in this ideology. It's contradictory of itself, okay? Because he wants to claim there's an absolute moral standard, and at the same token he says, but that absolute moral standard doesn't apply to everybody. Well, yes, it does. You see, it, it's either an absolute moral standard or it's not. You can't have it both ways, Mr. Raleigh. And he wants it both ways. Because, you see, some of this props up the ego of these occultists in thinking this way. This way they could kind of view themselves as being superior to others. And that some people are just not helpable. They're little more than animals. Let them go and do the things that they want. Let them fall into debauchery. Let this evil stuff go on in society around us. Don't try to change it. It's just the way that it is. You see, enjoy it while you're here. That's kind of what he says here in a sense. So if somebody's, you know, let them make the most out of what what they can while they're here and learn the lesson maybe in a future life somewhere, you see. Once again, making the assumptions, again, that are based on nothing really except the word of some ancient scholar somewhere that maybe said something about it, said, yeah, we're, we're all going to come back and live it all again. Now, is there evidence of reincarnation? Eh, it's hard to say. There's some people that make claims, but uh, there's nothing really concrete to prove or disprove it. So it's one of those things where, you know, if, if you want to play, uh, you know, th those types of games, it, you're taking a chance, okay? If you want to look at, you know, something from the most logical perspective you can, what if you only got one go around here? And what if that's wrong, you see, what have you got to lose by by doing everything you can in this lifetime to make things right for yourself with God? 
Wouldn't you want to do that? What if it's the only chance you have? Or what if it's your last chance? What if what if this reincarnation thing is true and you've already been around enough times and this is your last chance? And this is your last chance. I have some issues with the ideology of reincarnation because there's some things that just don't pass the sniff test with it. And I understand it's a teaching as old as man itself, but uh, we can't really source where the idea came from or if the source itself is verifiable, or if what the source told us is true. We have no way to validate that. So that being the case, logic would tell you to make the assumption this is your only go around here. So if you just want to go from a pure logic instinct here, you would have to agree that perhaps this is only my only go around here. So you're taking a very big risk, a big chance, if you want to live this life in a, a way where it's, you know, all about debauchery and that kind of thing, and you're taking your chances here that these absolute moral standards that have been handed down by us through religious institutions maybe are not the way that it is or are not true, but uh, wouldn't logic dictate if you only have one, one shot here, it would also be advisable to maybe... Do your best to obey those absolute moral laws that have been handed through through religious philosophy throughout time. Because what have you got to lose at the end of it all? Well, if none of it's true and you're going to come back and be reincarnated again, oh well, pfft, nothing lost in this lifetime, right? You know, nothing lost as far as the, the grand scheme of things goes. But if you're right, and this is the only shot you have then you could be facing an eternity of torment or an eternity uh, that's much better with reunification with God. You see, you know, you have to wonder about this stuff. But I, I totally think that uh, some of these precepts here that are being laid down by Mr. Raleigh in this book go against what the divine will would be or what the will of God would be. And they go against the idea that there's an absolute moral standard. Even though he claims in the beginning here there's an absolute moral standard, but then he claims it doesn't apply to all people. How is that possible? How do you have an absolute standard, but that standard doesn't apply absolutely all the time? So, so you, you see how it, it doesn't stand up to logic or reason. And that's the thing. A lot of these teachings, they are contradictory. And he pointed that out here. They teach in the form of uh, uh, these different contradictions to one another. They teach this stuff, right? They teach in paradoxes. That's what he said. They teach in paradoxes. Well... Here's the thing. You can't have an absolute moral standard and then moral relativism. You see, it doesn't work like that. One's true and one's not true. It doesn't work both ways in that regard. That's not a polarity, folks. The absolute moral standard or ethical standard, it either has to apply or it doesn't. Nature doesn't work in paradoxes. Okay, And they teach in paradoxes, and that's what gets me. It's different to say that there's polarities, which there absolutely are, but that they teach in paradoxes. Nature has no paradox. Nature knows what it's doing, and it will perform the right function at the right time when it's supposed to. You see, so to teach in paradoxes, it skews 
the mindset of the occultists, and this is many of the ways in which they twist and contort teachings, because they use these paradoxes as examples in their teachings. And it, it skews the mind in certain ways, and it twists this idea of there being moral absolutes, because that's the paradoxical nature of it, right? The moral absolutes, when you teach the paradoxical version of that, moral relativism, well, that twists and contorts the idea that there can be any absolute standard of anything. That would uh, entail that anything goes. But we don't observe that in nature. And that's the problem here. So I understand some of what he's teaching here and some of the ideas of how this hermetic principle of rhythm can be used to understand things and uh, can be used in order to describe certain functions in the natural world and such. But I think he takes it a step far here when he talks about things like this, and he's contradicting himself, which is a form of the paradox, which he said, and in so doing, it really contorts the teaching and the view and the understanding of how the process works. We are therefore able to appreciate the relations which all actions have to the purpose of life, namely union with God. All actions derive their character from the relation to this point. The person who realizes the law of rhythm, therefore, is perfectly satisfied with everything in the universe. He is just as well satisfied with the evil as he is with the good, knowing that out of the apparent contradictions seen in the world, unity, good, and harmony must grow. For this reason, he is content, satisfied with everything as he sees it, knowing that it all is all a merely a question of positive or negative polarity. The question may be asked, what relation has this to motion and number? Merely this, that God has a certain rhythm and that mental activity which is the spring from which action flows is or is not vibrating to this rhythm. If man is acting in harmony with the will of God, then his own vibration approaches the divine rhythm. If, on the contrary, he is traveling the path of evil and therefore is acting in opposition to the divine, his thoughts produce a rhythm decidedly different and decidedly antagonistic to the divine rhythm. It is for this reason that we speak of harmony as being a stillness, as action having ceased, because the rhythm in man as separate and apart from God which will give rise to all those activities, has now ceased. The only rhythm which is operative is that of the divine. Man's own rhythm has ceased. As man, he moves and vibrates no longer. For this reason, the whole problem of good is merely a matter of setting up within man the divine vibration in opposition to his own human or individualized vibration. Consequently, this whole problem of good and evil is a question of vibration, a question of motion, of number, or rhythm. When the proper rhythm is established, the individual rhythm disappears. When this is done, the individual disappears, is merged in God. The mystery of evil is, therefore, solved through the law of rhythm. The person in possession of this law has the key which harmonizes all of the apparent contradictions in the universe. This is, therefore, the true secret of mastership. Without this knowledge, the universe is like a shoreless sea. We know not whither we go, nor from whence we came. We do not know the meaning of it all. But when 
once put into possession of this master key, we are able to see harmony in apparent discord, order in apparent chaos, peace amid those antagonisms, and we can say, It is the work of God, and he doeth all things well. The man who can see the end from the beginning knows the harmony is complete. He sees the system in operation throughout all things. It is only to the limited vision, which can see only two or three points, that apparent discord appears. There is nothing wrong in the ultimate. We are going through a process of development, and out of all this discord and disharmony, perfection must come. Therefore, the person knowing the law of rhythm is willing to wait with the ultimate realization of the purpose of life, knowing what it is being able to trace the terminate purpose, which is operating throughout all this confusion and slowly but surely reducing it to harmony. And that's the end of Lesson 4, folks. Essentially, he's saying, if you understand the principle of rhythm, you know that all these bad things and stuff are happening, but it's okay. It's the way it has to be because it's part of our evolutionary cycle and this and that and the other thing. So, you know, don't do anything about it. Just sit back and be content with what you have and what's going on. Don't try to change anything. Don't upturn the apple cart, you see. Just go along to get along. Do the status quo thing. You know what, folks? The time for status quo is over in this world we live in. It's time to choose this day whom you will serve. Which side are you on? Are you going to be on the side of good or the side of evil? It's not time for complacency. All of this that this teaching in this this lesson here has taught was complacency. That's it. Be content, okay? That's all he's telling you. Be content. Let this stuff go on because, you know, the only way you could truly realign or have unity back with God is if your vibration matches his once again, teaching about vibration. And I understand there is a core of truth to the idea of frequency, vibration, all of these different things as a, a portion of manifestation here. And the Spirit of God does resonate in certain ways with the Spirit of Man. And everyone has their own frequency that they're attuned to. And frequencies are a very real thing. But uh, the way they use it to describe things in many of these occult teachings is kind of distorted in a way. So they're claiming that this is the key to mastership, okay? If you can attune your vibration with that of God, then this is the master key. And if you have this, then you can be content and understand what's going on and, you know, be fine to not do anything about it, Right? If you see bad things happening, just, yeah, I understand it. Yeah, that's, that's, it's bad, but it has to be bad, but good will come from it. Okay? Yes, we could have those assurances that all things will work together for good to those that are called according to his purpose. We, we should not just let evil be. It's, a, it's a, a crime when good men see evil and do nothing about it, you see. It's a real shame. And that's the whole point here. I think it's the complete opposite. I think the divine will, the will of God in this case, is the opposite of what he's teaching here about this principle of rhythm. The whole principle of rhythm, the, the whole designation behind it, behind this uh, hermetic principle, is that everything has a time in this reality. 
it has its time where it manifests. So I understand what he's saying, that yes, we will see evil manifest, and it is a necessity, and it, it happens in its time, and that at another time, the evil will be made good. And like I said, this is the very core of what spiritual alchemy is, taking the bad things that happen in your life and turning them for the good, making them into something good, transmuting them into something good because we could derive a type of lesson from that. But I think he explains it rather poorly and encourages people to be complacent, you see, in, in action here. And he also contradicts himself and teaches that, yes, there's an absolute standard of moral right and wrong, but it doesn't apply to everybody. But So, yes, there's this absolute standard, but it's not absolute. That's what he's essentially saying. He wants to have it both ways, you see. And I think a lot of this, like I said, has to do with the ego of many of these occultists. They want to view themselves as superior to others. So you, you see how they talk about helping others along. Not about maybe how far fallen I am, or, or me being the, the teacher or whatever in this case. doesn't talk about, you know, maybe he'll need a help a step up from somebody or, or, or something like that, or make a mistake or something like that. No, he talks about acknowledging others, maybe helping others, but only the ones that ask you directly for help. The other ones don't bother with. If you see them going down the wrong path, don't try to offer them correction, course correction, or anything at all. Because, you see, it's kind of the ego mentality, or the how he talks about the idea of race, or the racial mentality, where let those people go. They're on their downward path. We can't do anything to help them. So walk past them and let them fall in disgrace and and uh, do the bad things, and only help those who ask you directly for help. Don't cast your pearls before swine. This is the kind of lessons that are taught here. And we see so much of this echoed in some of the other occult fraternities and stuff like that, and these teachings that they offer. But I think it's, you know, in direct opposition to what divine will really is, what these moral absolutes that they claim that they understand teach us. Because there is an absolute standard of morals an absolute standard of right and wrong, as he does acknowledge. But then he completely discards it and tells us to do this opposite thing. So it's one of those ideas where we could see where many of the teachings have been taken and distorted out of context and have been used to promote certain worldly ideals and agendas. And I think that's largely what's been done here. It's no different. I mean, even though this is a really fantastic book, by A.S. Raleigh that outlines some of these principles very well, you could kind of see, as I always caution you, take it with a grain of salt because there's always that little bit of poison in there. And when you identify the poison by knowing the fruits of the tree, then, you know, you could see it for what it is. So this, this teaching that he gives of how to handle these situations and stuff in there, it doesn't align with what I think the divine will is. And at least that's my opinion, and I always reserve the right to be totally wrong about all of this stuff, but that's the interpretation I get of it, and that's the way I see it. I've been able to, through years of study, pick apart different aspects of these things and see how they align with the other teachings of these other occult fraternities and secret societies, and be able to tell where perhaps some of this has come from, and also be able to tell what kind of fruits that the teachings bear. That's the important thing. Look at it through that type of a spiritual lens. 
You can understand a tree by its fruits. That's what the Bible teaches us. I found this to be true. So what kind of fruits do it, does a teaching like this bring? Well, when you look at uh, what can happen if you just you know let people wander into sin and degradation and bad things, if you do nothing about it, what happens? If you see evil happening and you do nothing to try to do something about it or say nothing about it, what happens? What is the fruit thereof? Well, we wind up with more bad things. So we can understand a little something about that philosophy in that way. And I don't think this aligns with divine purpose. So that being the case, uh, we can understand some more things about this principle of rhythm. Understand the ebb and flow of how natural energies work. And yes, we do have the ebb and flow of natural energies inherent here. This shifting between good and evil, that's a portion of it that I think he's got right we have to have one in order to experience the other. So without the, the polarity here and the ebb and flow between the polarities, we would not have the experiential thing that we have and we wouldn't be able to determine one from the other, what is right and what is wrong. So we need to have that as a, a guidepost. But we also have this absolute standard of moral right and wrong. So... If we didn't have that absolute standard of moral right and wrong, you would not be able to identify which side is the right and which side is the wrong. You see, you wouldn't be able to identify what's good and what's evil. So we have to have that absolute standard. That's the way a law works, especially a natural law, a law of nature. It's indisputable, and it can't possibly be broken. You see, that's the thing about natural law. It's immutable. And that's why this absolute standard of moral right and wrong exists. It's a natural law in and of itself, and it's immutable. You can't argue it. It's absolutely there, and we could identify what's right and what's wrong in an absolute sense. So moral relativism, this is a complete farce. But it's also one of the standards that's been introduced by the secret society groups as a means of getting people to accommodate its agenda and do the things that it wants, convince them that uh, you're righteous, you're better than them, so the rules don't apply to you because you're, you're on a different strata, you're on a different level. You see, that's how that all works. So that's why they acknowledge that there's an absolute moral standard. But then they also say, but it doesn't apply to everybody. Because, see, they're beyond that. And this is what they teach in the secret schools. They're beyond reproach. They're above that, you see. They're superior. They don't need that absolute moral standard of right and wrong anymore because they're godlike, you see. Or at least that's what they teach in many of these groups. But this is how it's been contorted by those, those dark occultists who run things and have instilled these ideas through the various occult fraternities and secret society groups. So this is what they teach, and this is what begins to manifest here. Because you put these people in charge, they think they're on a different level than you and I, and the rules don't apply to them. And we see that throughout much of society, don't we? And this is all an abuse of this principle of rhythm. But anyway, folks, I want to thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. That's all I have for tonight. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night.